Um, I'm going to read from the Bible now, from Acts 4, 1 to 22, which is the part of Acts that we're up to. It's a long one, so just get comfy. The words will be up behind me as well. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than, rather than to God, sorry, you must judge. For we cannot speak of what we have, sorry, I'll start again. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. Really good to have you with us this morning and well done on actually making it in here this morning, particularly if you had to park up the top. It is, um, if you were with us last week, you'll know that um, the school here actually got broken into and we had to kind of shift gears and then move up to the church building on Darling Street. But even doing this kind of each week and then this week having to adjust around the car park up the top not being open is just a good reminder that God's people aren't a building or a particular place or time, that it's actually a group of people, the church. And as we gather, we can do that at any time or space that we want. Um, And just gathering under God's word is what God's people are called to do. So thanks for taking the time and effort to do that. Um, But also as we dive into the text this morning... Whether you're here investigating Christianity, whether you're someone who has a lot of questions about Christianity, or you're someone who's a a Christ follower, I hope that this morning is an encouragement for you, and an encouragement towards boldness. I'm going to pray before we open God's Word together. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that in Jesus is salvation, that in Him is hope, 
In him is forgiveness and life everlasting. And so, Father, we just pray that you would reveal yourself through your word this morning, that we might know you as you really are and worship you as you deserve. Amen. Well, Hamlet's written... Oh, Hamlet. That's a great start. Shakespeare has written a couple of plays, and his most famous one, if you didn't see it coming, or one of his most famous, is Hamlet. Now, if you're not familiar with the plot of it, it's, I can run it down for you pretty quickly. Everyone dies. That's, that's a good summary of Hamlet. So it's like, if, uh, if you're into John Wick, it's kind of like the, the 16th century version of that. But to give you a bit more of an expanded kind of rundown of the plot, it goes like this. Hamlet's dad, the king, is murdered by his uncle Claudius. And then Hamlet's uncle marries Hamlet's mum. So if you think your family Christmas is awkward, just spare a thought for Hamlet here. Then Hamlet gets a visit from his ghost dad who tells him, hey, my brother Claudius, your uncle, killed me. And Hamlet decides, all right, I'm going to kill my uncle. He needs to, he needs to be avenged. You know, my father needs to be avenged. And so he comes up with a, a plan. He hires a troupe of actors to sort of like to do a play before the king that basically is playing out the scenario that happened. In this play, within a play, a king is killed by his brother and then marries you know, his brother's wife and so on. And he does this in order to watch the reaction of Claudius while it's all happening to see if it kind of betrays that he's got a guilty conscience. And while he's watching this, the actor playing his mother, Gertrude, is kind of fawning over her husband, the king, in this play and saying things like, I love you so much, I love you forever, um, even if you died, I would never marry anyone else and like, things like that. And while this is happening, Hamlet leans over to his mum and he's like, what do you think? And she says, the lady doth protest too much, methinks. Right? She, what she says watching it is she's like, I think she's kind of overacting the part. And that phrase, like many phrases from Shakespeare, kind of became a part of our regular sort of language because it, it describes something that's familiar to us. We're familiar with the concept that when someone has something to hide, they'll tend to overact a bit. If you're here and you're an officer of the law, I'm sure you experience this regularly. If you're a teacher or a parent, if you're, if you're in any kind of authority position where you have to bust someone, you'll have seen this play out before you, where someone kind of overplays the part and you can see they protest too much. It gives away the fact that they have a guilty conscience. Do you know I think it's even sometimes the case that when it comes to worldview or politics, that you can observe this principle as well. When someone is trying to defend a worldview or a behavior that is indefensible, they will often overplay the part. The outrage will be over the top. The hysteria will be over the top. The moral panic will be over the top. And the reason for it is, if you at heart know that your position is indefensible, you need to use other means in order to persuade people to your cause. You will bully, harass, name call, throw adult tantrums, whatever it is, in order to get your way. Because if you have a worldview or a view or an ideology that doesn't hold up to scrutiny, the only way to get people onto your team is to harass them on. But here in this passage, we'll see that this is not the way of Christ. That when the church of Christ faced its first persecution and opposition, that the way that Peter and John respond is not through threatening, not through name-calling, not tit-for-tat kind of banter, but it's through this calm boldness. And it shows that if you have a conviction that Christ is Lord, 
that you can have a boldness that is confident and calm and yet not over the top, that is inflexible but not insecure, that is bold but not bullying, that is unyielding but not unempathetic. That the way of Christ leads to this calm, spirit-empowered boldness, one that continues to preach the name of Jesus, continues to hold out that salvation is in him alone, and yet at the same time does not yield and is still empathetic with others. And what we're going to see in this passage is that it starts off the back of a miracle. If you were with us last week, Jacob spoke a little bit on what has just happened in the section previous. And if you have questions or particularly objections around the idea of, of miracles, and if that's a particular big objection for you in Christianity, I'd encourage you to check out his talk from last week. But basically in this passage, it describes a man who couldn't walk for his whole life, and he's outside the temple in Jerusalem, and he's asking for money. And Peter and John come up to him, and he says, he asks them for money, and they say, we don't have any money, which would be incredibly disappointing. But then they say, but what we do have is this, in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And the man walks, and it causes a huge stir. And we see that this man actually goes from not being able to walk and staying outside the temple to walking in with them into the temple. And as Jacob explained last week, what it means was that he went from someone who had no relationship with Jesus to someone who had a relationship with Jesus. There's this outward kind of, the outward miracle is kind of a sign of an inward reality. Someone who has been healed and put back together and forgiven and brought into relationship with God. But as you can imagine, if you were to do this in a reasonably small city like Jerusalem, it's going to cause a bit of a stir. And so what we're looking at here is the aftermath of what happens after this miracle has occurred. And we pick up in sentence 1 of chapter 4. It says this, And as they were speaking to the, uh, to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men who came, uh, came to about 5,000. So a miracle has just occurred, and you would expect that the result would, would be that everyone would be like, oh my gosh, what has actually gone on here? Is God really on the move in our midst? And you would expect that particularly of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. But that's not how they respond. We're told here that the first thing that happens is a group of Sadducees come and they are greatly annoyed. It seems strange to be annoyed by this, but if you know a little bit about them, you'll understand why. In Jerusalem, the whole religious infrastructure was run by the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the ones who were in charge. The Pharisees were the religious leaders who were connected to the people. They weren't particularly rich, but they had a lot of influence because they were seen as really committed, God-fearing people. But the Sadducees were the ones who were pretty rich. They worked with the Roman government who actually occupied the entire territory. And they also ran the temple and the temple guard, which was kind of like the local police force. And these were the ones who were primarily responsible for crucifying Jesus. They were the ones who actually had authority to arrest him, to send the guards out to go and get him, and to bring him before a trial, which they called the Sanhedrin. And so these Sadducees here are annoyed, we're told, for two reasons. One, because Peter and John are preaching Jesus. They don't like that because in their interests are to keep everything politically stable. They have their power secured. They don't like people like Jesus stirring up the people and causing a fuss because if the Romans get upset about that, they're going to take it out on the Sadducees. 
So they didn't like Jesus and they wanted to get rid of him. They don't like that they're preaching Jesus. But the other thing they don't like is that they're preaching the resurrection. Sadducees didn't believe in life after death. You may have had it in your mind that every, every ancient people believed in life after death. But they, just like modern societies, were a mix. Some who did, some who didn't. And the Sadducees didn't. And they were annoyed about the fact that Peter and John were talking about this resurrection. That Jesus had risen from the dead. And that he was promising that anyone who believed in him would rise from the dead. And they were worried about the influence that this was having on the crowd. And so they hear that this miracle has happened. They don't see it. And we're told that as these guys were speaking, the priests and the captain of the temple, so probably like the, kind of like the police captain would be the equivalent, they charge in and they arrest them. Can you think of a stranger response to something genuine miraculous happening? Do you know, years ago, I heard about a guy who was swimming at the beach, didn't, wasn't, wasn't just that he was drowning, but had actually drowned, was pulled ashore by lifesavers, and they revived him. And after he'd been saved, he actually sued them for cracking one of his ribs in the process of, of conducting CPR on him. Now, after I heard that story, I had, I had in my mind, I was like, I wonder if, like, you know in shops how they keep under the counter a little photo of, like, shoplifters? They're like, watch out for this guy. I wonder if after that, lifeguards had a photo of him, and they're like, if this guy puts his hand up out there, just leave him to the gods, right? Let's just let him go. But I thought, what an outrageous response to having your life saved. That after having someone actually saved you from death, that your response would be to sue them for what is significant but relatively a minor injury. Well, here is like a similarly shocking response. They've seen something that is an incontrovertible miracle. It's not like this guy had been like brought in from out of town. And it was like some kind of show act that had turned up and pretended that something had happened. We're told here in the text that this guy was known, that he'd lived there for 40 years. That people knew him. He was there day in and day out. That he could not walk. And then after this, that he could. And their first response is to be annoyed. The Sadducees are so blinded by their love for power that they they can't even engage with what's going on here. And so their response is annoyance and they arrest Peter and John. And with this, they put them into custody until the next day. It's obviously late in the day. They don't have time to pull a trial together. So they keep them overnight. And then the next day, they hold a trial. And this is what happens. In Acts 4, sentence 5, we read, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, who were all of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? They gather a council that's somewhat similar to the Sanhedrin. It's not the full kind of set. But what they have there is basically all the power brokers in this particular city. And they gather them all together. And we're told here that Peter and John are in their midst. And the likelihood is that they'll probably set up in a semicircle around them. Now, I don't know if you've ever sat down for a job interview or sat before a panel of any kind, but it can be pretty intimidating when it's you feeling like it's you versus the rest. But here, Peter and John are sitting before a council of people that they know don't make idle threats. They know that less than two months beforehand, they had killed Jesus. So these guys are not mucking around. And when they're interrogating them, they know that what they say and how they say it may be the reason that they live or die that very day. 
And so they're sitting there on trial. And they're asked one question. It says, by what power or name did you do this? The inquiry is, who gave you authority to do what you did? At this point, they're not questioning that it happened. What they want to know is, how did you do this? By what, who gave you authority to do this? Who authorized it? Partly, this is kind of like a, I guess, a, a witch trial for them. They want to know, is there, there any kind of other sorcery that's gone into this? Or, or really, just generally, who actually, whose charge are you under? And here, they're trying to set them up in a way that will lead them to some kind of punishment. But Jesus' disciples were prepared for this moment. Before Jesus died, he gathered his disciples together and he told them this exact thing would happen. The book of Acts is written by Luke and in the first volume of Luke, in chapter 12, we read how Jesus prepared his disciples. Look what he said in Luke 12. He said, I don't know if it is 12 to 12, I'll put it up there, it's 11 to 12, there we go. Luke 12, 12 to 12 is a bit too many 12s for one text. <laughs> said, and when they bring you before the synagogue and the rulers and authorities... Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself and what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. It was Jesus who actually performed this miracle through them, and it was Jesus who prepared them for this moment. It's Jesus who said for them to wait in Jerusalem until they receive power from on high, until the Holy Spirit would empower them for this mission. And Jesus said, when you get dragged before the courts, and when people are threatening you with violence and with death, he says to them, don't be afraid. Don't worry about what you're going to say. It's not going to be about how you put your case together. But the Holy Spirit will give you words to say in that moment. And what we're about to read is the Spirit empowering Peter to respond in a moment of crisis, when his life is on the line. In Acts 4, 8, he says this, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has come to be the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, we're told. And this phrase comes up again and again in the book of Acts. And he's filled with the Spirit, knowing that he already is someone who has the Spirit. If you're a believer in God, we're told that every single believer has the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit if you already have the Holy Spirit of God? Well, the phrase in the book of Acts is used to describe when the Spirit has particular influence on the believer for a particular purpose at a particular time. And this time it's not for a miracle. This time it's to speak boldly and clearly in a moment of crisis. And the most common reference to the Spirit filling God's people is to give them boldness to speak in really difficult times. And here Peter is filled with the Spirit to speak. And notice that he starts very respectfully. He doesn't start by name-calling. He doesn't start by antagonizing. But at the same time, he's not groveling either. There's just a calm confidence to him. But he takes no backward steps. Imagine standing before a panel of people, knowing that they weren't just kind of 
distantly responsible for the death of Jesus. They were directly responsible. So in front of him is the high priest, Annas, and Caiaphas, who was the high priest before him, and others, it says, of the high priestly family. These are the ones who pulled the trigger. And he's sitting before them. And he starts respectfully, but then he says, just so you know, the Jesus who is here in Jerusalem, the Jesus that's caused this revolution, the Jesus that you crucified, well, just so you know, he's the one who's responsible for what's happened here. He's the one who's brought it about. We're not special. We're not powerful. We're nothing extraordinary. And he says, here's the cornerstone that you have rejected. When you're building something, the cornerstone was the foundation stone. It's what you start with. And he's saying, you treated Jesus like he was nothing, but it turns out that he is the thing that is most central. And he finishes by saying this, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is, this is Peter's conviction that gives him just this calm boldness. The belief that Jesus is the one in whom salvation is found, and Jesus alone. He is sure that there is a God, and that one day everyone will stand before that God, and the only way to stand before him, sure that you will be approved, loved, and accepted, is to trust in Jesus. That his death would have taken away your sin, and made you, and washed you new, and brought you before God. That it's not about your religiosity, or your ethnicity, it's nothing to do with your wealth or success or military power. None of that before God will count for anything. The only way that we may stand before a holy God who sees all and knows all is to be in Christ, to trust Jesus. And that's why he finishes by saying, there is salvation in no other name. There is no other way to have life eternal. There is no other way to know God. There is no other way to be right with God other than through Jesus. And so he's not afraid of these men who have authority over him. These people who could, who could take his life that very day. He doesn't fear them because he knows that the only one who has true authority is God himself. And so he stands before them and stands confidently. And see, we, we need to get this. That Jesus is not a way or a way to be religious or a way to connect with God that's the same as many other ways. Peter stands and the church stands and always has stood on the one truth that Jesus is the only way. He's the only way to be saved from the wrath of God because He's the only one where the wrath of God has already burned. A few years ago, it was kind of the beginning of 2020. I don't know if you remember that summer. They called it, again, like in echoing the ones of the past, but a black summer, and that it was one where we had an extraordinary number of bushfires. And it's almost hard to remember because I don't know if you remember that particular period of time, but we went from bushfires and then in January it went straight to floods. So there were all these photos around of like those um, roadside signs that were saying like, know your fire exit plan, but they were up to the neck in water. And there was like, welcome to Australia. That was kind of like the, the, the photos that were sort of circulating on the internet. But during that time, it was probably a time when like, well for one, all of us seem to, for the first time in our lives, have that New South Wales fire app. Everyone's tracking like the little spot fires, like working out whether or not you can go on holidays or where you need to be and that sort of thing. But it was probably also the first summer where everyone really actually did know their fire exit plan. But remember, one of the things that they would communicate during that time is that if you really were stuck in a zone where you couldn't get out, there's only one sort of safe place that you could be, and it's where the fire has already burned. The reason they do backburning and all of that is because the only safe place in a bushfire zone that you can be 
is where the fire has already burned. When it comes to salvation, the safest place to be is where the wrath of God has already burned. And it's burned through Jesus. So now Peter says anyone who is in him is now safe, secure, welcomed in. To believe in him is to be united with him. And as we saw the other week, therefore united with every other believer all over the world. And to be in Christ means to be safe, secure forever. And to know that you have life eternal in him. That he is the one who has defeated sin and death. And so Peter finishes by saying, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men which we may be saved. It is Christ alone. And this is what gives him this confidence to speak so boldly. And so how do they respond to his claim? Do they repent? Are they awed by it? They double down instead. Look what they do. In Acts 4, 13 to 22. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in the name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. They realize that something has happened here that they can't deny and they can't, they can't deal with it. And they have the astonishing realization as well that these men before them are not educated. They're speaking about the things of God with no formal education, which would have been a shock to the educated religious leaders at the time. And instead of thinking, wow, maybe something's going on here, instead they double down. And knowing that they can't deny what's happened, and knowing that this is going to cause shockwaves throughout Jerusalem, and knowing that it already is, there are already 5,000 who follow the way of Christ, what do they do? They threaten them. What is the only thing you can do when you're trying to hold an indefensible position? You threaten. And so they pull the, the, the trigger on the last resort. They threaten them saying, look, speak no more about Jesus. Speak no more about the resurrection. Speak no more about any of this. And they don't have to say, all we will, because they know that he knows that all we will. They've followed through on it before. And so they urge them to be silent. And look at how the disciples respond to this. How do they respond? You could imagine maybe in that moment that Peter and John could be like, well, you know what? There's already 5,000 of us here in Jerusalem. You just try and stop us. Well, like, do you, do you see what happened to this man? Well, imagine if we turn that power on you. Well, they could just call them names or whatever it is. No, how do they respond? Look what they say. In Acts 4, 19 to 22, it says, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you or rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So after hearing them with credible threats, Peter just says, well, look, whether or not I should listen to you guys or to God, you can judge, but I can't help but speak of what I've seen and heard. 
and I'm going to keep talking and you can do whatever you do and we'll just see what happens. He doesn't threaten, he doesn't name call, he doesn't respond with anger or vitriol, he doesn't try and call people to back him up. He stands there confident in the gospel and confident in God and just says to them, look, I know what I've seen, I know what I've heard, I know what the truth is and I can't stop speaking about it and nothing you do can convince me otherwise. I'm sorry, I I can't, there's nothing else I can do. And so with boldness, he goes out the door knowing that they're threatened with violence and knowing that in just a few chapters they're going to face it, but knowing also that they can't help but speak of Jesus. And what's crazy is this wasn't just the church back then. This wasn't just like a novelty in church history. The church throughout the world is bold to speak about Jesus and are willing to suffer imprisonment or torture or even death because they are so confident that there is salvation in no other name. They are so confident of the life that they have in Christ that they are willing to suffer these things knowing that they can't help but speak of Jesus anyway. The church is growing rapidly in countries where it's illegal to follow Jesus, illegal to carry a Bible, illegal to speak his name, illegal to tell others about him. And yet, just like the early church did here, they continue to. And so if you're here and investigating the claims of Christianity or curious, or even you just describe yourself as look reasonably skeptical, you wouldn't describe yourself as particularly religious at all. In fact, for you, it's probably it's, it's something you'd find pretty hard to believe. There is a question to be asked about these people all over the world who are willing not to kill for their religious beliefs, but to die for them, to suffer for them. That at the very least, they're obviously incredibly sincere, but it does speak of a truth that there is a God who is so good that you'd be willing to lose absolutely everything in this world. See, I think the case is there is a modern pressure in a secular society towards kind of a spiritual apathy. We romanticize things like doubt and look, you can't be sure about anything, so can you really stand firm on anything, which is a firm standing anyway. But the idea of like, the, the generally, look, nothing can truly be known, so we don't need to get that passionate about it. And Dorothy Sayers, who's an author, described this, this spiritual apathy in this way. She said, spiritual apathy is the sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there is nothing for which it will die. And it begs the question, in this modern secular malaise, is there something worth living for or even dying for? Not killing for, that's different. That's easy. Hate will do that. But is there something that you could love and enjoy so much you'd be willing, like the early church, to even suffer for it? Anything believe that you're so good and so true that it's worth more than your life? If not, then it's at least worth finding out why it is that so many do believe that there is. There's something to that. And if you're here and a follower of Jesus, this is a challenging passage in this way, isn't it? It's a challenge if you're a believer. Because if you call yourself a believer, the question you would have to ask yourself is this. Would I really be willing to suffer or to lose face or to lose anything for the sake of Christ? Because if the answer is no, and I know this sounds direct or even maybe harsh, it may be the case that even though you've been at church for years and years and years, you've never fully known Christ. Because the pattern throughout the New Testament is that to know Jesus 
is to not just know his name or to know about him or to know the gospel, but to know him as your treasure, as your very life, as the thing that is worth more than anything else. Your savior, your only hope, the one who is worth everything. And it's worth asking these kind of questions of ourselves now on this side of eternity. And if that is where you're at, or if you're not sure, and you're part of a small group here, or you've just been coming along to church, we would love to pray with you and speak with you about these things. Because there is no more critical question, is there? As you look at this passage, the claim of Peter is stark. He says there is salvation and no other name. And the call for the believer is to speak, to speak of Jesus. So if you are here and a follower of Christ, your call, just like Peter, is to speak of what you have seen and heard, to witness to Jesus. And so here I want to lay one thing before you. If you are here and you know Jesus and you've experienced his grace and his mercy upon your life, if you have what you believe to be life eternal, then can I encourage you to be one who speaks and shares of this grace week in and week out? And there is one thing in particular coming up that might be worth thinking about and praying about. On the 7th of May on a Monday night, we're going to hold a preview to Alpha. And Alpha is just a course, it's a space for anyone who's investigating Christianity to come hear kind of a simple gospel presentation. But probably the best part of it is just the chance to, to discuss these things. We don't have many contexts where you get to discuss deep spiritual questions without any kind of judgment or any kind of, I don't know, criticism or having to have the right answer. But it's a great space to actually hear a presentation and then respond to that. And so on the 7th of May, we've got a preview, and I'd love to have as many along from church to that to see what it's kind of like. But then after that, on the 21st of May, we're going to kick off that course. And if there are people in your life who you know who are investigating Christianity or investigating spiritual things, this would be a great time to invite them along. And it's the case that Alpha won't be the right thing at the right time for everyone, but it probably is for someone that you know. And what we're going to do now, kind of in the theme of this uh, this passage is I want to share with you a testimony that's shared as a part of the Alpha Course from two women, Miriam and Marzier, who themselves know the worth of Christ and have been willing to risk all for the sake of it. 